This is Game Designed Unboxed, inspiration to publication on the No Direction Network. Danielle, Denise, and Ben interview tabletop designers on the games they've made. Together, they unbox how a game went from inspiration to publication. Thank you for joining me, Danielle, Denise, and Ben for Game Design Unboxed, inspiration to publication. Episode one, Expand City. Today, we are joined by Alex Cutler, designer Expansity by Breaking Games, Before There Were Stars by Smirk and Laughter, Team 3 by Brain Games, and many, many more. Alex is an amazing designer and developer, but we asked him to focus on just Expansity for this episode. Alex, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Danielle. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so let's just kind of jump in. I want you to tell our listeners a little about yourself. Like, how did you get into the gaming community and game design? Sure. Um, so I always liked board games, which I mean, I suppose that's probably a good place to start for people who want to design games. Uh, <laughs> um, I had always been like the type of kid who made games for like school projects and things like that. Whenever there was an option to, to gamify something, that's the route I'd go. Um, but about, I guess it's eight years ago at this point, I started, um, dabbling in it more seriously. Um, I, it's, it's the silliest sounding thing, but like Expansity actually started as a dream. I had a dream about the city building board game. And then I woke up and just started putting pen to paper and kind of like everything spiraled out of that one, one moment. Um, and I, I just, it was kind of like a back burner hobby thing for a long time. I worked on Expansity for, I want to say about four or five years. Uh, my timeline's all messed up because of uh, how long 2020 has built up. <laughs> um, I guess actually it was probably more like four years, three or four years, um, where it was just like, I'd, I'd fiddle with it for a few months, then come back to it. Um, but it was always just like a hobby type thing. And I moved to New Haven, Connecticut in 2016, I believe, um, and met a design group there. Uh, and previously I had, uh, lived in Vermont and I knew a few people up there who designed board games and there was a, a small local group that met, but all of us were kind of industry outsiders. You know, we didn't really have a sense of what the path is to get a game published. It was sort of like a fun hobby thing. And we all kind of had this pie in the sky dream of like, Oh, maybe someday I'll have a board game. Um, and then when I moved to, to New Haven, I met a group of people down there who uh, actually some of them had published games and they knew people in the board game industry. And suddenly it was like this whole uh, world kind of opened up. Um, and so I started going to shows and, you know, that, that was kind of like the beginning of my foray into the larger board game industry. You really just kind of like sloped into that. So just circling back to the beginning of Expansity, um, when I first started out working on it, I kind of had the same mindset that I think a lot of first-time designers do, which is, hey, I think I've got something here. I'll probably run a Kickstarter. Like, I know that's the place a lot of people's minds go at first. And, you know, those are obviously the two main paths, right? You can create your own game or you can try and sign with an existing publisher. And I'd, I'd actually started commissioning art for Expansity myself and thinking about running a Kickstarter. I had, um, I think I have about half a dozen images that I had... I found someone on Fiverr who uh, lived in like Venezuela or something. <laughs> and I was like going back and, and it was like painfully slow to get art. Like I, I'd send out what my request was and it'd be like three weeks to get a response back. And I was on a trajectory for like, maybe I'll actually have assets in like two years and I can run a Kickstarter. And then I kind of just fell into this, this larger community of game design and had the opportunity to go to uh, Origins, which is a gaming convention in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, I guess that was Origins 2016 would have been my first one. Um, I could be off by a year. But um, that's where Expansity got signed by Breaking Games at my very first show. Oh, wow. So did you just set that up ahead of time or did you walk over and go, hey, here's my prototype? Um, so in New Haven, one of the people who I uh, became friends with when I was getting to know that community had a lot of connections to the board game industry. And so he sort of took me under his wing and took me around and introduced me to a lot of publishers at the show. And uh, some of them were set up beforehand. Some of them were sort of just roll up to the booth and, hey, do you have 15, 20 minutes? Can we Can we show you something? I must have taken about a dozen meetings, I'd say, at that first show. Um, and of those dozen, 
there was Breaking Games, which was interested enough in Expansity to want to play a full round later that evening that I showed it to them. And then I think it was Stronghold said, this seems pretty cool. If no one else takes it at this show, leave a copy with us uh, and we'll take a look at it later. And then the other tens were all just no, you know, like just kind of like, oh, we already have something similar, which is like the polite no or no, which is the regular no. Um, <laughs> and uh, so, you know, like if not for the fact that I had the opportunity to show it to so many different people, it could have easily been a miss. It was kind of just this very serendipitous right place, right time. There was someone who really saw the vision of what I wanted, you know, like saw my vision for what the game could be and believed in it as much as I did. And that was uh, breaking games. Oh, that's awesome. I've definitely heard that Origins and Packs Unplugged tend to be better for pitching versus Gen Con. And I know from experience, it's been true for me. Yeah, Origins is... And it's so weird. I mean, I don't know if it's inappropriate to like anchor where this podcast exists in human history, but since we're in COVID times right now, it's so weird to like reminisce about going to shows and being around thousands of other people. But Origins is great. It's a very relaxed show compared to some of the other shows. So the, the big shows in board games, right? You've got Origins in Columbus, you've got Gen Con in Indianapolis, um, Essen in Germany, uh, PAX Unplugged, PAX East. Um, and then, you know, a bunch of others that are kind of like maybe like one tier down from that. Gen Con is a madhouse. Essen is in Europe, so, you know, it's hard to get over there. Origins is kind of this perfect storm of everyone is there. All the publishers are there, designers, developers, all the companies that you would want to try and have a meeting with are there. It's very peaceful compared to some of the other conventions. So you actually have the time and the opportunity to, to sit down and play games with people in a way that you might not at Gen Con. Gen Con, everybody kind of has their schedule booked out into 15-minute increments for you know five days straight. Origins, you kind of have this it's more casual and you, you have the opportunity to like drill down on a game a little bit more. So in the case of Expansity, um, I had this first informal meeting with uh, Peter Vaughn, who was the developer at Breaking Games at the time. Um, and he said, hey, I think this is cool. I would like to see more of it. I'd like to play a full game because I just kind of showed him the pieces and, and talked through how it worked. And he said, let's meet up at the bar uh, this evening. I'm going to bring my boss, Sherry, and the three of us will play a game. And because there was that kind of informality to it, we, we had that opportunity to kind of segue into a longer meeting. And then you're, you know, it's over drinks and food and it's a little bit more casual and you really have that opportunity to connect on a more personal level too, which is always great when you're pitching something, you know, to get to know the people you're talking to and they get to know you and there's that, that personal connection. Um, and the play test went really well and they basically signed it on the spot. Um, the contract wasn't done for a few months, but it was, you know, like a handshake kind of like, yes, we want to make this game. That's awesome. So what did your prototype look like when you brought it to them and how'd you make it? Expansity, because I'd worked on it for so long, went through a lot of iterations. Uh, the very first one, when I like woke up from that dream and started drawing, it had tiles that were just on cut out graph paper and Legos. And Legos actually ended up being like a really good component. It kind of lasted for the first three or four years of working on it because it did exactly what I needed to do. Um, for anyone listening who isn't hasn't seen what Expansity looks like, it's a city building game and you're stacking these little floors of a building together to build taller buildings. So if you can imagine just those two by two Lego bricks, you know, it, it was kind of the perfect component. Um, when I was living in Vermont, I kind of wanted to make a shift to something a little bit more proprietary. You know, the Legos were great. They served a purpose, but I was like, what, what might this look like, um, you know, done up a little nicer. And it was at that point that I met someone up there at a, at a meetup for 3d printing, uh, who owned their own 3d printer. And they actually, uh, helped walk me through how to learn AutoCAD, like a 3d modeling program. So I made my own little, brick models and then sent it to them and they printed me oh gosh i guess it's like 200 or something of these little plastic bricks and of course it's you know 3d printing is like painfully slow so it took like two weeks but then at the end of it i had this set that essentially looks like what expansity looks like now except not as detailed it was just cubes but the way they fit together and everything really hasn't changed since that moment i'd love to hear more alex about 
the iteration process. So it's really, it's cool hearing how the piece has changed over time. I'm wondering over those four years, um, what was play testing like and sort of the iter- to hear a little bit more about the ways that the, the game kind of changed and evolved over time. Expansity Far and Away is the game that I worked on for the longest amount of time, both in terms of actual time, like over how many years, and then in terms of hours, how many hours I put into it as well. And a lot of that was because since it was my first game, I was really cutting my teeth on game design with that design. And so I was learning everything for the first time. And so some of the things that like, now that I've been through that rodeo a few times and I can like see the the matrix a little bit better it took me a lot longer to come to those moments. So I probably play tested Expansity easily over a thousand times. And, you know, it's not like the shortest game either. It's somewhere between 45 minutes and an hour. So I, I would absolutely hazard to guess that I've spent over a thousand hours playtesting Expansity. Wow. Most of my early play tests were just me and my dad. Uh, he is the person who got me into board games and he was the first person I played Expansity with. And I played it with him hundreds of times and we liked it so much that we would play it for fun. And I I don't even know that at the time I was really thinking about it in like a scientific play test kind of way. It wasn't until I moved to Vermont and met other people making their own games that I really thought about the concept of play testing and what I was trying to get out of it and make those iterative changes. About two years into Expansity, I had kind of sanded off all the edges of how the pieces interacted, but it was still a pretty basic game. Um, there weren't any hidden goals at the time. And so, again, for anyone who hasn't played Expansity, one of the things it has is these contracts that you draw, and they give you these sort of hidden goals that you're trying to complete in the city to get bonus points. And for the longest time, the game didn't have that. It was just kind of you draw a tile, you place it in the best spot. You're, it was a very visually interesting game, but I kind of got to the point through those hundreds of playtests where I realized that it was a solved game, where I had played it so many times that I kind of always knew the best move. And, and it was because I hit that wall of like, okay, well, I'm not getting as much fun out of it anymore because it's a solved system for me. I was like, what can I add to this to give it some depth? And then I started folding in that idea of like, okay, well, these hidden contracts, these things that I know you don't know. And that was kind of like the major change that shifted Expansity from what I would consider to be like a very amateurish design to basically like 95% of what it ended up as. And I consider like, I'm, I'm really happy with how it turned out. And I think it does the things that I wanted it to do. And that was the major shift, getting that that hidden information in there. Now, I felt like when I played, it was so obvious what people were doing in the beginning, but we had no idea what we were looking at in those specialty cards. And that really did change so much of it towards the end of the game. I was like, crap, I did not realize you were doing this thing. <laughs> yeah, it has those those moments of, of reveal, right? Or like drama of, oh, you're going for that? Or like, oh, I think I know what you're going for. I'm going to stop you from going for that. And, you know, that's not it's not rocket science for, for game design that that is more satisfying than having all the information be public. But at the time when I was when I was an amateur designer, it was definitely something that I, like I learned the hard way of like, oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. That's a thing that games should do. I also love the fact that you can only be working on three buildings and you can't go like two more above. And so you have to like continually build step by step. And I would always try to build like a fourth building. And the person watching the play test, because I play tested at Gen Con was like, no, 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 you can't do that. And I was like, but why? There's a lot of these little like um, city ordinance kind of rules in the game, which came out of a place of wanting to constrain the game in the sense of... The core system of Expansity, right, is you're building these buildings, but um, the city, I wanted it to grow organically. So I've I've always been super interested in city planning, architecture. I did a summer internship at a city planning office when I was in Vermont. Um, I just like always thought it was the coolest thing. I love, like SimCity was 100% like the, behind the DNA of Expansity. And I really wanted it to have this kind of natural growth progression. So I I struggled to, and I think I landed in a place that I'm happy with, but I really tried to find a nice balance of enough rules that the city is kind of guided in a direction that is both visually and mechanically interesting, but not so many rules that, you know, you can't parse it all or it bogs things down. So having those height limits and, and the number of buildings you could build, mechanically, it serves the role of keeping the play tight and keeping players like 
on track towards the early and mid game goals and kind of on ramps them to building the bigger buildings. But then like visually, it also has that really nice effect. If you have the city that starts off with all these low buildings, then all of a sudden you've got these taller skyscrapers. And then near the end of the game, it's kind of like the life cycle of a city, right? You've got this like little town and then it's a big city. And then near the end of the game, you've got these vacant lots that you're putting down to try and hurt each other. And you've got like the bad neighborhoods, like it's kind of like a city in decline. What a life cycle. That's so cool, Alex. And for me, um, as a little bit of a designer and a very big dreamer, uh, just to circle back again to the origin of Expansity and how it came to you in your sleeping hours just baffles me. Uh, you wouldn't happen to have any other designs that you're working on that have come from a similar place, would you? You know, that first one was really kind of, I guess, lightning in a bottle in terms of being inspired in that way. Um, most of the games I've designed since then. So I, just to, I guess, back up a little bit in terms of my life cycle as a designer, uh, after Expansity got signed, I very quickly had another, in the next like year or so, I'd say I had another four or five designs that got signed because I started treating it more like a part-time job as opposed to just a hobby. like, it was kind of like once I had that success with Expansity getting signed, I really switch, flip the switch over to, okay, I want to try and do this full time. I want, I want to make this my future career. Mm-hmm. And then I was sitting down and very intentionally thinking about what type of games do I want to make? What themes am I interested in? Which mechanics am I interested in? I think the way I approach game design now is much less of that kind of just like <laughs> random inspiration and, and more intentional starting place. And, and within that intentional starting place, there's obviously still moments of inspiration, but unfortunately, or maybe, I don't know if it's a good or a bad thing, but Expansity was the only, only game that came to me in a dream. I have stopped dreaming about board games. I spend way too many of my waking hours oh, playing board games. So <laughs> yeah, I think I want to dream about other stuff now. <laughs> totally get it. I was going to say, Ben, you post like a dream blog every single day, so you do not get it. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. Yeah, because I remember, Alex, when we met, and I was like, oh my god, you did Expand City? And then I was like, wait, and you did Team 3. It's like, you does your brain work in 3D? Or those are your only two 3D games? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I've, I feel like some designers have like a, a thing, right? Like that they have like a, a particular thing. And I've never felt that way. Like my, my games are kind of all over the place. Expand City is kind of like a midway Euro kind of thing. Team 3 is a party you know, maybe a little bit of dexterity puzzle type game before there were stars is storytelling. I've got little trick taker, sick collection type stuff. I've, I've got one heavier. I was about to say a few, but not, I, I don't think they're good enough to count them yet. I, I stay away from the heavier Euro stuff a little bit just because it's so hard to play test heavier games. I think I like to do everything, honestly. Like I've never really felt like I wanted to to just like stick with a particular genre. That definitely makes sense. And you tend to work in teams too, but Expansity, that was just you, right? Expansity was just me. There's uh, a few co-designers listed. I had a friend in New Haven who I was working with at the time uh, that we co-designed a few things together that never got signed. And he's listed as a co-designer. And then the guy who um, introduced me to the industry is also listed as a co-designer, but expand their contributions were more dev. Um, it's, there's not really like a good cat. This is like a totally side thought thing, but one of the interesting debates going on behind the scenes right now is that there's not a listing for dev on like BGG, but it's, it's rapidly becoming like a much more commonplace thing in our industry. Oh yeah. Like the, the idea of someone going in and like just putting that last 5% you know, of polish on something. But since that wasn't a thing that existed at the time, they're listed as co-designers. But Expansity, I would say, is like 95% my baby. Once you had the contract, what was it like working with a publisher for the first time? And are, are there any things that you learned from that that you carried with you into future? Because your other games were published with, you know, all kinds of different publishers. So what did that first relationship what was that like? Yeah, so I'll speak a little bit just to the contract first, which the way contract, like I can't give necessarily all the details about the contract, but I will say that Breaking Games offered a very friendly designer royalty. They were a professional company to work with for sure. Like because it was my first game and I didn't really know the industry that well, I uh, hired a lawyer to go over the contract, which is always you know good advice for people signing their first game. Once I'd gone through that process a few times, now at this point, I don't need to run things by a lawyer because I kind of know what to look for in a contract and what what things to watch out for. But at the time, it was definitely beneficial to have someone whose job was to parse contracts actually take a look at that. And so I would recommend like anyone who gets their first game signed. It's not a fun 
feeling to like you're you're sending a game that like maybe you're going to make a few thousand dollars off of at best case scenario and you're immediately paying a few hundred of those to a lawyer to take a look at the contract but it's definitely worth it because you hear horror stories about you know predatory contracts and companies that you know are unscrupulous with uh, the things they're asking breaking games however was great to work with i mentioned it was kind of like a handshake deal at okay. origins and then getting the actual contract signed took another two, three months, I guess. And I think that's somewhat typical. I mean, it depends on the company. Nothing moves super fast in board games. And then once that contract was officially signed, it took another two years for Expansity to actually come out. So it didn't come out until Gen Con 2018, I believe. Breaking Games at the time, I think, had like a big backlog of things they'd signed that they had to get out first. So Expansity took a while to come out, but it wasn't because it necessarily needed a lot of time in the oven. You know, it was just where it fit into their lineup and when they wanted it to come out. No, that makes sense. I can definitely say I still remember your game because that was the first Gen Con I actually pitched at and I pitched to Breaking Games. That was the first time I ever did it and I learned a lot from it. <laughs> like, make sure to have a meeting first and don't just have your friend introduce you. <laughs> I don't know. Having your friend introduce you can work sometimes. Yeah, that's true. It worked for you. Well, not, a, not a Gen Con. <laughs> that's the difference between Gen Con. Between Gen Con and Origins, yeah. Yeah, I feel um, bad for the guy. He's like, yeah, okay, you have a minute. I was like, oh, okay, bye, hi. <laughs> yeah. No, um, so you, you probably pitched to Peter Vaughn. I don't, I don't know if you remember, but uh, Peter was who I worked with at Breaking Games, and uh, he's wonderful. I think he's he actually just uh, started his own publishing company, and they had a uh, Kickstarter recently. I think it's called Cardboard Alchemy is the name of the company. Um but he was my main point of contact for the entire time that Expansity was in development uh, at, at Breaking Games. And I would say that I was more involved with the process than it is with the average publishing company. But part of that was me pushing for that because more so than the other things I've designed. I had, uh, and, you know, like they always say, like, you shouldn't like treat your game as your baby, like, you know, kill your darlings, like that kind of thing. Expansity was very much my baby. I'd spent thousands of hours over four years. And like, I really wanted to see it through to the finish line. So I was, you know, bugging him with emails every few weeks about how things were going and, and input and things like that. Um, and he was great to work with. And I'm super happy with the way it, it came out in the end. So what was it like once it was published and out in the hands of people and watching people play your game? I'd love to hear sort of that experience once it's unboxed. Um, how did that feel? Yeah, I mean, I still remember the first time that I actually held a copy in my hands with the shrink wrap on it. And it's just, it's like, that's the moment, right? Like if you're an aspiring game designer, like that, that is the moment that you are dreaming about for like the, the, the whole lead up to that. Um, and that still sticks with me. Like that moment of like actually like pulling shrink wrap off of a game with my name on it. Um, it was a great feeling. Um, Breaking Games did a really cool launch for it at uh, Gen Con. They had, uh, they did up the booth kind of like a cityscape. Um, they had like brick wall backgrounds and they had the stacks of the games, which the, the side of the expansity box, when they're stacked on each other, it makes like a skyscraper just because of the way the, the graphic design works. So they did a really cool launch booth. And then you've got, you know, like it had a line of people like, you know, cause the Gen Con does this thing where like people can come in early to buy games. Like they can get in half an hour early if they have like a special badge or something. And so I remember like the first day of Gen Con, like just kind of like talking with Peter and then they let in the like the early badge holders. And then all of a sudden there's like a line of people at this booth, like holding the thing you created in their hands, like waiting to buy it. And it was just like one of the best moments of my life, like hands down. That's so thrilling. I remember that display and walking by and and trying to get in um, to see what all the buzz was about and was super excited when I finally got to play. It was a great experience. I definitely agree with that. That was the first one because I had an exhibitor badge and so I was there early and I got to get in on the first play test. Yeah, I mean, it, it's just so cool seeing it like out on tables, um, even at later shows like where it wasn't even being sold. Like I saw it at um, BGG uh, in Texas. There was, I walked into like a room that had a few tables set up of people playing board games. And one of the tables was playing Expansity. Um, and like, that's almost cooler in a way to like, act, like it's not the launch event. It's just like some random convention, like two years later, and the, there's people playing your game. Um, it's just super surreal. Um, and of course, I'm like incredibly awkward about it. So like, I, you know, I didn't like 
I didn't go up or like say anything. I just like awkwardly stood ten feet away, like watching. Oh God, you should have come up with a sharpie and been like, "Can I sign that?" And look at you, like, uh, "Don't touch my game." And you'd be like, "Well, I yeah. created it." Yeah. <laughs> I think I'm wondering. So, especially now that you have more games under your belt, is there anything you would have done differently, or sort of what was the biggest lesson you learned from? this entire process, a journey really of four or five years. For Expansity specifically, I don't think there's a ton that I would have done differently. Um, In the moment, I remember having a lot of feelings of like from time to time, Ask the Game was going from when it was signed to when it actually came out. There were definitely points that I was very frustrated because it, it was a process that was taking a long time. Sometimes there'd be you know, no news for the longest time. And then I, I remember being very afraid that like it was going to get canceled or wasn't going to come out. There was, you know, the price had to get raised $10 above what they wanted to raise it. And then they were not sure if they wanted to sell it at that price point. Uh, But plastic all of a sudden cost more in China. And I remember just feeling very like frustrated with like, oh, like, I don't know what's going on. Like, is this actually going to happen? And then and, and this is like a, a good news, bad news thing for people who want to get game signed. Like as I've had games with other companies, I then I now look back on my experience with breaking games very fondly. In the moment, I was like, oh, no, like this is like they're not telling me anything and I don't know what's going on. And like other companies are so much worse. That's <laughs> so funny. Um, they're good companies, but like the average board game company, like it's, you know, it's, I don't know. I'm, I got to be careful not to like sound too negative on it, but yeah, don't name names. No, no no names, but it's, um, it's definitely like a lot of board game companies are like owned by hobbyists, right? Like people who want to make a lot of the smaller companies, right? It's like people who love games and they want to make games, but they aren't necessarily like business minded people. So, you know, sometimes like you'll sign a game and then it'll come back. Right. And that actually happens fairly often. I've, of the, dozen or so games that I've signed since I started designing games. I've gotten five of them back at this point. Uh, Yeah. And like, it's just part of the process, right? Like, um, and this is pretty like from talking to other designers, this is not atypical, like things change, you know, uh, breaking games, like anecdotally, I, I won't like get into like finer details on it, but I know that they had a lot of games that were signed around the same time as Expansity that didn't end up, uh, coming out, you know, like they just kind of have to choose like which ones do we want to keep and push forward and which ones do we want to pull back on. And some companies are very good about like only signing games that they want and they know they're going to see through to the finish line. Other companies maybe take like a scattershot approach and they sign way more games than they're ever actually going to make. And then they hand back the ones that they decide they don't want to do. And that's, I guess, a little bit of a, like a tangent, tangential thing to the advice about like watching out for contracts. It's also like if you have an offer from a company to that wants to publish your game, it's always a good idea to just ask around other designer friends that have worked with that company, like go to their website, see what other games they put out and like just send a few emails to designers. You'd be like, Hey, how was it working with, you know, this company? Like, did you enjoy your experience? Whatever, whatever. And then like just talking to people, like there's just, there's a lot of like back end network, communication among designers once you've like met people on these these convention circuits of just like oh how was your experience working with company x oh it was it was pretty good i'd work with them again or like oh no that was terrible i'd never work with those guys again um and it you know you just get kind of like a sense of like which companies are like the the ones that you'd want to have repeat business with i guess i think that's helpful information i think a lot of people listening it's providing sort of that wisdom of uh, needing to kind of vet, you know, check with folks, talk with folks uh, who've gone down this path before. Uh, I, I, I think that's wisdom. Yeah. And I, I guess I, I want to be clear, like 90% of companies are good to work with. Like it's, it's not like most companies are bad. I mean, like there's, there's in terms of like delays and getting stuff back that can always happen. But in terms of like companies actually being predatory, that is definitely not the norm. Um, it's just one of those things to be cautious about if you're a first time designer, because mm-hmm. if someone wants to publish your game, like the hardest thing, is, if, if it's your first game and you have an offer on it, like the I, the absolute hardest thing in the world is to say no mm-hmm. to someone when you've got that offer on the table. Because, you know, I, I remember exactly how I felt when I got that first offer. I was like, I got to like 
I was like, you know, like trying to find a pen in my backpack, like at the table, like, can we sign something now? <laughs> yeah. It's like, I don't care about these 10 other people I'm about to talk to. You said yes. Yeah. It's like, cancel the meetings. Like, it's all set. <laughs> um, oh my God. With the games that came back to you, was it within the like two years or whatever you put in your clause or was it earlier? Like as soon as they knew it wasn't going to happen, they told you, or did you just have to wait for the contract to get to that two year mark or whatever you'd put in it? Uh, so it depends on the situation. And I just want to kind of like expand on something you just said for audience people. Just if you didn't know about this and you're listening and you are looking at contracts, what Danielle's referring to is something called the sunset clause, which is if this game doesn't come out in X amount of time, the rights of it go back to you, the designer. Always make sure you have that in your contracts. Otherwise, the company can sign your game and never put it out and there's nothing you can do about it and you can't pitch it around anywhere else. So always make sure that's in your contract that if the game doesn't come out after a certain amount of time, it goes back to you. Um, And in the case of my games, one game that came back, it had reached that point and I asked for it back and then pitched around and got it it signed elsewhere. Um, Two other, one of them just came back like a, Two months ago, actually, it was just kind of like, hey, our plans changed. We're not doing this anymore. Not in like a bad way, just in a, here you go. Um, And then another one was about six months ago. Um, I guess it was five months ago at this point. It was just kind of like, hey, coronavirus has changed all of our production plans. Like, we don't want to do this weight of game anymore right now. Um, And, and, you know, like some, some of that is, I'm sure it's like, the bulk of that is like probably like true statements. They're not, you know, like lying or coddling about why they're giving it back. But at the end of the day, then it's still not a fun feeling to get a game back. But that's if you want to design full time and have that be like a reoccurring thing, then that's just part of what you're signing up for is that sometimes games don't come out. That's exactly right. It's kind of two different games, whether you are pitching actively to publishers uh, or preparing to self-publish just exactly uh, to mirror your own experience there, Alex. So I hear that, and I think that'll resonate, yeah, with a lot of the listeners. Now, I was thinking uh, if we get any players of Expansity listening to this podcast, was there a uh, an Easter egg or maybe even a secret strategy that you snuck into the game for someone to discover or pull off in some fun, crazy way? Hmm. I don't think that there's a secret strategy, at least not one that I've discovered. And I've definitely played the game more than anyone else. Um, it's I, I consider Expansity to be a game that's about 50-50 in terms of luck and skill. If you're playing a two-player game, it trends a little bit more towards skill because you have more turns. So Expansity has 60 tiles, and the tiles are the timer of the end game. And so in a two-player game, both players get 30 turns. In a three-player game, 20 turns. In a four-player game, 15 turns. So you have more time to execute your strategy in a two-player game, basically. You have twice as many moves as a player as you do in the four-player game. So in a two-player game, it trends towards skill. In a four-player game, it trends a little bit more towards luck of like drawing into the right contracts for the things that you're going for. At this point, I would say I win Expansity 80% of the time I play it. I don't think that's typical even of people who play it a lot. I think it's just literally because I have all the contracts memorized. So when I see people starting to do something, I know exactly what they're doing. I'm so not playing this game with you. <laughs> <laughs> Although it's it, it's funny, actually. Like I've played the game since it came out maybe like a dozen times, if that. And like up until it came out, I was I had played it thousands of times. It's really it's weird that like once it exists, I almost, it's not like I'm not interested in it anymore, but it, like it felt like a finished book that like I didn't need to keep reading in a weird way. Right. So right. I'm probably super rusty right now. So you could probably take me. Here we okay. go. After COVID. <laughs> um, as far as Easter eggs, I don't think we count as an Easter egg. I tried to put some humor into the contract cards um I, I like puns most like a decent chunk of my game designs actually start as puns and, and then a game going. comes out of it yes um so it's stuff like you know have a building that's next to a church and a bar and it's called like second communion or things like that oh my god that's so good <laughs> so i i, I there's a little bit of like humor in the contracts i don't think there's anything oh, I, I, okay i don't know if this counts as an easter egg but like i mentioned earlier the game is SimCity inspired um, and so I definitely wanted to make sure that like residential was green and commercial was blue in the game. 
like in terms of the lots, just because that's what it is in SimCity. And so I just wanted to pay homage to that. Oh, yeah, totally. I definitely saw that. It was one of the first things that I noticed and liked about the game was the SimCity sort of influence. I spent many a year uh, playing SimCity on my <laughs> little PC. Uh, I am curious, like, as you reflect on this entire process, what are you most fond of? What's sort of... Uh, what are you most, what was your favorite part of this entire experience? I think I got a lot of satisfaction out of seeing a creative endeavor all the way through. I'm someone who, before I got into board game, I've always been a creative person. I've always liked making things, but I never stuck with something to the extent that I stuck with game design. Um, you know, like I tried writing books. I had tried, um, you know, streaming video games or something like that. I tried, uh, you know, drawing. Um, and I would always like start down this creative process and then get frustrated or bored and, and put it away and not come back to it. And with Expansity, I started working on it after I had that dream. I worked on it pretty intensely for like six months. And then the same thing happened. I put it away. And then a few months went by and I hadn't touched it. And I said, you know what? I'm going to get this thing back out again. I think there was something there. And I, that moment happened, you know, a dozen, two dozen times over the course of the life of the game where I was like, ah, you know, what am I doing? Like, I don't actually want to run a Kickstarter, like, but no, okay, let me go back and try and commission this art. And then I'm not actually going to buy a plane ticket to Ohio to go pitch this game. Am I like, that's crazy. Uh, okay. Well, no, I'm actually going to do it. Like, I don't want to walk into this meeting with these like owners of companies and embarrass myself. They're not going to be interested in this okay, no, but I'm going to do it. And and then forcing myself to take that next step at every part of the process and seeing it go from literally like just an idea, a dream, all the way through to that shrink-wrapped shrink copy, holding it in your hands with like the, the nice art and the beautiful 3D pieces in a booth that is decorated like that game. Like that entire process was just like such an incredible journey for me. Yeah, that's really special. I do have to ask a question. So when you unwrap the box, you open it up, you looked at all the finished components. What were your thoughts? Like, were you over the moon? Did you think these like 3D pieces were amazing? Was there anything you would change? I was really happy with the components. It, it ended up being nicer than I thought it was going to be, honestly. Um, I think, uh, I believe it was Chris Strain is the 3D modeler for uh, Breaking Games. And I, you know, my original prototype, my idea was like these buildings were just kind of cubes basically that stack. And he did these beautiful kind of like, I don't know enough about architecture to say what time period, but like, they've got like these like really nice windows and sconces and all these little details. And when you stack them together, like they have this really satisfying pop when they like come apart. Um, I liked the graphic design that they ended up going with for the contract cards. I love the box art. Um, I love how, you know, you can stack it on this, like, Production-wise, I'm super happy with how the game came out. Um, the only thing that I would have liked to have happened differently was I think the game would have had a much maybe warmer reception and like maybe sold better and had a better life cycle if it had been able to be sold at a lower price point. Uh, when it came out, it was $60 MSRP. I think oh, yeah. at that first Gen Con, they might have had some special deal or something, but the original goal of the game was to make it a $50 or less game. Um, we were talking about 40 at one point, but it's a very heavy game. And when I say heavy, I don't mean by play weight. I mean by like physical component density, like there are over 200 plastic pieces in a box of expansity, which, you know, like they're these bricks. So you aren't really thinking of them as minis, but it's essentially like a, like a box full of minis, like a big box game. Like there's a lot of plastic in there. Um, and the gameplay weight, I think is like a 40 or a $50 game, probably like 40, honestly, but the production value knocked that up to a higher price point, uh, which I don't think it sold as well as it would have if it had been that, that 40 or 50. Um, but you know, that, that kind of just one of those, it is what it is type things. And I, I don't think I would have wanted to trade the quality of the components for like, I don't know, like cardboard or something, you know, like I'm, I'm happy with how it came out. And that's probably like the only thing that like I can wistfully look back on what if, 
but I don't think it could have gone any other way. Yeah, no, I mean, I feel like the plastic pieces were so nice. I do have one minor complaint. The bag was a little tiny. Oh, yeah. Oh, the bag, oh, the bag is so bad. Okay. I, was like, um, I wonder if he's going to say this because that was my No, I, I, honestly, I had forgotten about it. It's been because I, I re, like the first thing I did with my personal copy was replace the bag. So <laughs> uh, I forgot about how bad the bag was. Um, yeah, it's, it's like the exact right size for all the pieces to fit into, but it's a yeah. game that requires you to pull from the bag. So until you've gotten the first 10 rounds out of the way, it's very tough to like shake up the bag and shuffle it. Yeah. Just if you have a copy of Expansity, just get rid of the bag, get like a crown Royal bag or something, throw it in there. That was something that like they knew was a problem, I guess, going into it. And it was kind of like, okay, well, like if this gets a second edition, we'll fix the bag, but it just never happened. It hasn't happened yet is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess that that's like a good transition into, I am pretty sure the game is dead in the water at this point. Um, Peter Vaughn was like the main champion of it at, at breaking games. He was with it from the beginning and he was kind of the person who was like really pushing for it to both stay on the release schedule and get the treatment it got. And um, now that he's left the company, I don't think there's anyone there necessarily like really pushing for it. There was yeah. right after it came out, there was like a lot of excitement initially back and forth of like looking at expansions. I actually have like three or four expansions like done and ready to go for expansity. There's one with like trains and subway stations. There's one with industrial tiles. Um, like they're, they're basically like good to go, but there's just not like a financial incentive for them to actually come out just based on the number of units that the first run sold. Oh, wow. Like, I, I, you know, you need some threshold of like people who own the game for it to make sense to do expansions. But Peter had been talking for a while about doing a Kickstarter. Like, the, I think Breaking Games has started doing Kickstarters of like relaunches of some of their existing titles, like Rise of Tribes and things like that, and Dwellings of Eldervale. Um, and Expansity was on that list to get that treatment. But as far as I know right now, it's probably not happening. But I mean, there's always hope. Um, one thing that was interesting though, is they actually, so I think the initial print run in the U S was 3,500 units. And I believe that's mostly sold out at this point. Um, they also, about a year ago, I kind of found out just like randomly, um, that they partnered with Simon, uh, to do a 3000 unit print run in Asia. So there's actually just as many copies of Expansity in Taiwan and Japan as there are in the U S right now. So did it sell better there or here? I think so. I think it like kind of like they they made it and then they're all gone now. So at oh, least wow. at least based on what I got paid in my royalty statement, they they all went somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. They're not just going to pay you if nothing's selling. <laughs> uh, but that's like so like uh, one of the one of my like treasured possessions now is I have a couple of different expansity boxes with the logo in. There's one where it's in Japanese and there's one where it's uh, in in Taiwanese. Um, which is super cool. Like, you know, you've got like the kanji, like for expansity or, you know. Yeah, that is super cool. I'm sad that the expansions aren't going to come out. They better come out. <laughs> Everyone likes trains. There's so many train games. I'm sure you say I'm going to give a train to this game and they'll be like, yeah, I'll back it. It would have made a lot of sense. I mean, there's so much you can do with like the SimCity starting point. Like I'm definitely bummed that it didn't happen, but I will say this, like, one of the things that has given me a lot of perspective on Expansity is is designing other games, you know? And I think if Expansity was my one game and it went through this life cycle process and start to finish, and that was the only game I'd ever done, I might feel a little bit kind of like melancholy about the whole thing of like, okay, it's over now. And like, this was this chapter of my life that's closed. But because I'm, you know, designing other things now, I don't feel a sense of loss of expansity coming to an end. It just kind of feels like one of several waves, I guess that's part of it. Well, you've given a lot of really great advice already, but um, right. what advice would you give sort of based on your experience with expansity to new designers who are thinking about their first design and hearing, hearing about your story? So what, what would you want to make sure they knew? Yeah, I, I guess I will frame this with the caveat that this is advice for normal times, not COVID times. <laughs> um, so some of this does not necessarily apply uh, to the U.S. at this exact time. But once the world is normalized, hopefully, um, 
if you don't have a local group, like that is number one, far and away, the most important thing that, that you can find. And there are online groups too, um, which, you know, like if you don't want to wait, you can see if you have a local group that's meeting online. So I've got a local group called the Game Designers of North Carolina. Um, that's They meet super frequently. It is great uh, pre-COVID, um, but they still meet online. Like we just have like a Discord where we're just constantly talking about game design and thing like things like that. Um, so having a local group is fantastic of not just people who will play test your game, but who are also like designing their own games because the best feedback you will get about your game is going to come from other people who are in that same design headspace. Finding, you know, having play testers, having people try out your game, super important. Getting feedback from other designers, way more important. Um, you know, it, it's not that it cheapens the first one. It's just like you need that second critical eye of other people who are doing game design, um, especially if you're just starting out to really take take projects from like 80% to like that 95, like ready to get signed place. And, you know, like Danielle, I, I met you at a game design retreat. You know, that we went to a place where we were all yeah, so productive there. Yeah, it was fantastic, right? It's like it's like Project Runway or something where like all these designers are in one space and they're all like bouncing off of each other. And and stuff like that is fantastic. So if you have a local group or even like a digital online group of other designers, uh, that's the number one thing to to get started. Once you're at the point where you have a game that you're happy with and you're ready to, to try and get in front of publishers. I, I mean, I'm going to speak from the perspective of someone who wants to get their game signed by publishers. Obviously, Kickstarter is a different way to go. I've never run a Kickstarter and none of my games that are out have ever been Kickstarted. So I can't speak uh, you know, from an expert perspective on Kickstarter. I will say that anecdotally, I know that if you don't want to run a business and you don't want to like be doing shipping and logistics and customer support maybe Kickstarter is not the way to go because actually making the game is only like 10% of the job of running a Kickstarter. It's like a very different animal. Um, and I think a lot of people get over their heads on them. Uh, but some people like having full creative control of the process and that's totally cool too. But let's say you want to get a game picked up by a publisher. The best way to go about that is going to shows and going to shows in person. Obviously, that's not a thing that exists right now in the world. At some point, it'll start up again. Um, in the meantime, there are lots of really cool online uh, pitching events going on. I think by the time this podcast comes out, the window will have closed for the pitch project, but that's one that's going on right now. I'm sure there'll be others like that. Uh, I I represent Pandasaurus as a scout for new games. So I've actually been on the receiving end of a couple of digital pitches. Um and um, there are like speed dating events, digital speed dating events where, you know, publishers will see a bunch of designers over like tabletop simulator or like through a discord channel, but getting fa I mean, to say like quote unquote FaceTime, like it doesn't necessarily have to be in real life because so many things are digital at this moment, but like getting FaceTime with publishers is fantastic. Like most publishers have the ability to receive sell sheets and, and look at those and you, know, you email in your sell sheet and say, Hey, take a look at this. Um, that's all well and good. Having an actual conversation and being able to like play the game with someone is definitely a much more fruitful path to getting a game signed. Um, which in normal times when you're at a convention, you know, that's reaching out ahead of time. So sending emails to the publishers that you want to meet with, um, sitting meetings, having a good sense of what those companies might be looking for. You know, like if this is a company that only publishes lightweight family games, you know, don't don't waste their time with your, you know, two hour Euro. Um, just kind of being aware of what people are looking for. Um, having those meetings, building those connections. When you go to shows and you're meeting these people, you know, they're meeting a lot of people. They're meeting hundreds of people over the course of the show. It's, it's a really crucial thing to, to keep kind of going back, which, you know, like I know that's not necessarily like the easiest thing for really going to shows cost time and money and it's a commitment. But if you want to be a game designer and that's a long-term goal, one of the best things you can do is sort of get yourself onto their radar over and over again. Like, Hey, you know, so-and-so from such company, like we met last origins and now I'm seeing you here at Gen Con. Do you remember this game? Well, I changed it based on some of your feedback. Would you like to see it again? Or I have this other game now that is a better fit for you maybe. And 
you know, it, it takes like two or three go arounds before like you become a known quantity with, you know, like you remember like, Oh, this isn't just some random person. This is someone I met before. And having that personal connection makes things so much easier when you're pitching for, for you and them, you know, like it takes that, that anxiety out of it, out of the equation. Um, and then after that, like it is important to remember that even if you do everything right and you have two dozen meetings, you're still going to get probably two dozen no's. Like getting a game signed is hard. Publishers have very specific things they're looking for. Sometimes they aren't even like seriously looking at that time, but they're still taking meetings as a formality just in case something great is out there. You're going to get so many more no's than yeses, and that's not a bad thing. I have about seven or eight games under contract right now after the ones that came back. I've had about a dozen games signed total. I've had easily over a hundred no's, you know, it's, that's just part and parcel with, if you want to do this more full-time as a career type thing, you just have to get used to that rejection and not internalize it. It is not a reflection of you or the quality of your games. It's just the reality of the market that there's so many games out there and publishers have to be selective about what they're looking for. Well, this has been great. You've answered more questions than we even thought to ask. And thank you for the great detail, especially on contracts. I know a lot of designers are kind of clueless about that. I mean, I asked you in person about a lot of it, and I'm probably going to ask you for a lawyer (laughs) or just to look at it if I ever get one. Um, I'm just going to say, if if you're a designer out there and you do get into a situation where you need contract advice, obviously the kind of like, company line is ask a lawyer, but also talk to other designers. Anyone who's been you know through this process before is going to have opinions and thoughts. And I, you know, even though I consider myself pretty well versed in what I'm looking for in a board game contract, I always, when I get a new contract in, send it off to two or three of my friends who are also designers to take a second look at, because you always want more eyes on those things. No, that's great advice. Well, I think we're going to wrap it up then. So thanks for joining us for another episode of Game Design Unboxed, Inspiration to Publication. This is your host, Danielle Reynolds. You can find me on Facebook at DMR Creative Group, on Twitter at Creative DMR, and on Instagram at Token Gamer, and that's G-A-Y. And my other host, I have Denise, and you can find her. You can find me on Twitter at year23 or on Instagram at KellyDN. And then we have Ben, and you can find him. Wherever Alex is. Uh, but actually, I think that's great, too, is maybe we can ask Alex if anybody wanted to contact you, Alex. How might they do that? Absolutely. So my personal email is a Cutler, so A-C-U-T-L-E-R, 703 at gmail.com. Um, I, if you're, you know, a designer who has questions or you just want to like talk about the industry and you have questions, feel free to reach out. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. I think I'm Alex Cutler 89 on Twitter. Uh, I'm not on Twitter a ton, but you know, shoot me them DMS. Um, the other thing I'll just drop a little bit real quick is I, so I mentioned really briefly earlier, I do run scouting for Pandasaurus. So if you have a game design that you would like to submit to Pandasaurus for consideration, feel free to send a sell sheet or an email to development at pandasaurusgames.com. That's my email there. Again, that's development at pandasaurusgames.com. And I will take a look at your pitches. Don't worry, I'm going to be emailing you. (laughs) Well, thanks for joining us. This has been great. And everybody else, we'll catch you on the next episode. This has been another episode of Game Design Unboxed, inspiration to publication. If you'd like to hear more great gaming podcasts, check out nodirectionpodcast.com. Join us next time.